Hey, why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles with me, the Old Testament, to uh, Psalm 118. There's one verse of Scripture in particular that I want to share with you this morning. Psalm 118, but uh, just to make sure we all know what we're doing today, we're continuing, as Dave said, our series called All In, in which we're exploring the idea of responding individually and corporately to, uh, to what God has done for us in Jesus, because as we talked about last week, God has gone all in for us. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all in, loving, sending, sacrificing, rescuing, indwelling, and empowering us for life and calling us to mission. And if you missed last week's message, uh, I really encourage you to go online and listen to it because it sets the foundation for not just what we're doing in this series in the weeks ahead, but really what we do as a church, okay? If you're a guest with us today, it's a good day to be here. I'm going to talk about where we are as a church and where we sense God leading us in the future. So welcome. Uh, this past uh, July, uh, July 13th to be exact, a six-year-old boy was playing on a, a, an Indiana sand dune called Mount Baldy. How many of you have ever been there? Anyone? Uh, we used to take our kids there and, um, and play all the time in the summers. And uh, he was on this sand dune when a sinkhole uh, basically sucked him under 11 feet of sand. You guys remember the story? It was all over the news. And uh, knowing the child was going to die if they didn't get to him in time, park rangers, police officers, firefighters, EMTs, excavating crews, camera crews, doctors, nurses, volunteers, spent hours digging in hopes of rescuing him, which thankfully they did. But, you know, in order for that mission to be successful, it required the full participation of a team of highly committed people, uh, people who were willingly spared no expense, time, ability, energy, and financial resources to make that rescue a reality. It required those people to be all in. And I was thinking about that this week, and I realized that God has called us as a church to a very similar type rescue mission in a world where men, women, Children, students are, are dying not knowing about the love and the grace and the forgiveness of God offered in Jesus. Our mission as a church is to bring the good news of rescue to as many people as possible. Uh, remember, we, said, we, know, we noted last week how Jesus said to his followers, he said, As the Father has sent me, I'm now sending you. And one of the last things he said to them was, You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, locally, regionally, globally. History tells us that's exactly what happened. Uh, The Spirit came with power upon believers in Jerusalem, and subsequently, through their message and their ministry, their love, their service, their generosity, the church grew in numbers. It expanded rapidly, spiritually impacting not only their immediate community, but a culture and an empire and eventually the world, which is why, you know, the written record of those early Christians is called the Book of Acts, not the Book of Ideas, Thoughts, or Good Intentions. Well, you realize, don't you, that what we're experiencing here at Parkview is nothing more than the, the, uh, the continuing outplay of really the book of Acts um, and what happened in the early church. What we see happening around us today is not, you know, it's not the result of some ingenious growth strategy that I and a few others concocted and implemented and are going to write a how-to book about. Uh, I'm not that creative. It's much simpler than that. Um, we're just a group of Jesus followers who understand our mission here and now hasn't changed from when Jesus first explained it. How, you know, through our acts of love and teaching and ministering to people around us, we are the witnesses to, we are the messengers of God's love and grace. And uh, over the past three years alone for us, we've experienced 39% growth in our attendance uh, with our holiday attendance topping uh, well over 2,000 adults. You know, why is this happening? 
I had a, a journalist from a Christian magazine ask me that recently in a phone call, saying, you know, there are struggling churches all over the country. There are struggling churches in Chicago. Some, some stats have one church a week uh, closing in Chicago. And they said, you know, why, why is, why is, what's happening at your, your church? Why is that happening? And uh, why the growth and all that? And I honestly, I didn't have a, um, a well-thought-out response uh, the best I have to, had to offer was this. I said, well, first and foremost, this may sound cliche, but it's true, God is at work. You know, what's happening here is not, again, it's not the result of clever organizational human ingenuity. And, and so this is where Psalm 118, verse 23 particularly comes into play because the writer is reflecting on God's goodness and all that God had done. And the writer says, the Lord has done all this and it is marvelous in our eyes. And that's... You know, that's our song, man. That's what we're saying. It, it, is, it is God showing us divine favor uh, as a church in our efforts to um, make a spiritual difference in people's lives. It's God who has generated this ministry momentum that we're, we're just trying to keep up with. Now, why the momentum? Why the divine favor? I can't claim to speak directly for God, but I think it has to do with two things. First, it has to do with biblical truth and conviction. You know, there are three approaches to life. Atheism, no God. And I'm not talking just as a, an official system, but a functional way of living, ignoring God altogether. There's theism, a belief in God, but it's really religion. It operates on this kind of performance-driven basis, you know, works-oriented. And then there's biblical Christianity, grace through faith in Jesus. And explaining the difference between these three uh, approaches to life is a very effective way to challenge people today in our culture to think carefully about what they, what they believe. And it brings people to a point of decision. And what we're seeing is that when people understand the difference between the three approaches and they understand what Jesus has done and they embrace the good news of his grace, it transforms their lives. Not from, not from the outside in, but from, from the inside out. You know, the basic operating principle of religion is I've got to work hard to, to be good so I might be loved and forgiven and accepted by God. I serve and give out of guilt and fear and obligation. But the basic operating principle of the gospel is I am graciously, undeservedly loved, forgiven, and accepted by God through Jesus. And so my giving and my serving comes from a place of freedom and joy and gratitude. In other words, what's happening to me on the inside is affecting what I'm doing on the outside. It's affecting my life and behavior. You know, there are people in churches all around the nation who I think look and talk like Christians, but who are stuck in religious mode. The truth of grace hasn't moved from their heads to their hearts. But that's what I think is happening here. Um, the grace of God in Christ is not only just being understood, it's being experienced. And grace changes everything. It changes us. The second reason for God's favor, it uh, seems to me, has to do with biblical love and compassion our willingness to welcome anybody and to embrace all of those who come to our doors, but also for us to get outside of those doors and go serve people in our community, especially the poor, the oppressed, the, the overlooked, the forgotten, the marginalized. That's pleasing to God. The compassion that you guys as a church show and demonstrate through generous serving and giving, all for the benefit of others, is Christ-like, and it's very compelling. In the Old Testament, the prophet Zechariah said, This is what the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. That's God's will for us. Or as Jesus put it, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. 
It's this idea of flexing both our muscle of biblical truth and conviction and biblical love and compassion. And, I, and that's what the Apostle Paul was getting at when he wrote the early church. And he said, he goes, look, who's going to harm you uh, if you're eager to do good? But even if you suffer for what's right, you are blessed. Don't be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Truth and conviction, love and compassion. The two together are spiritually compelling and honoring to God. And so he continues to draw more people to us. He continues to open more doors of opportunity for us. Um, and there's this increased sense of momentum, this, this building wave, this moving of God's spirit that is, that is ex- it's an ex- exciting thing. But with it comes increased responsibility. I've been at this church a long time, and, um, you know, it would be really easy to just coast, to say, you know, hey, things are going pretty well. Let's not, you know, let's not rock the boat. Let's not ruffle any feathers. Let's not push the envelope, whatever analogy you want to use, right? Let's just enjoy the status quo. And I'll be honest, I've thought about that. But I don't... I don't believe God's interested in the status quo. I believe God is leading us to do more to impact our world locally, regionally, and globally, as Jesus put it. And so, and so I want to share with you some new things that we believe God is leading us to do as a church. Now, um, I remember it was, a, it was a year ago in the basement of one of our, our elders' homes where uh, our leaders were together and we were praying and talking about this. And so we've been, it's been on our minds for well over a year um, we've been sharing this uh, off and on for about eight months, so I want to just lay out some more specifics. I think we're ready to do that about what we believe God is leading us to do. Let's talk globally for a minute. As a church, we currently uh, support and work with 17 individuals, families, and ministry partners across 11 different countries worldwide. Uh, one of those partners is International Justice Mission, who you get, some of you guys are familiar with, IJM, we call them. Uh, and IJM is, uh, works globally to free people from modern-day slavery. And they are currently working in uh, Kolkata, India, where I, I just visited several weeks ago. Uh, they're currently working there to specifically rescue young girls who are enslaved in the sex industry. And it's a big problem. It's a big problem worldwide, but it's a particularly a big problem in India and in that city. Um, we, we visited IJM office there. We, we learned about what exactly they were doing it, how they were doing it. And then they took us out uh, uh, to visit some of the red light districts in Kolkata. Um, it's believed there's between 15,000 and 20,000 girls uh, in the city, uh, prostitutes. Many of them are underage. In fact, in one, one red light district alone, if you think of our property here as a church and you think east where Ackerman Park is, that green area out there, put those together. That represents about, represents about four city blocks in old, 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 uh, old uh, Kolkata because the, the, the buildings were very close together. And, but in that one area alone in the city, it's an area called Saragucha, uh, they believe there's between eight and 12,000 girls in that little area. Um, and again, many of them are underage. Uh, and these young girls are just taken, taken from their villages around India. These 
these criminals, they go out and they just, they just snatch up these girls. They take them or they talk to their parents and tell them these poor people out in, the, out in the, uh, these remote villages, hey, we got a job, they, we're going to take care of them and they'll be sending money home and, and the parents believe and they never see these girls again. They do it in India. They, they get these girls from Nepal, from, from Bangladesh. And they take them, their parents never see them again and they put them into these brothels in this little area of, of Kolkata and... Um, uh, imagine your 11-year-old daughter being taken and you never see her again. And uh, IJM, IJM will rescue any girl who wants help, no matter her age, but they are specifically um, looking to rescue these underage girls. They've, they have rescued girls as young as 8 years old in these brothels. And uh, they work undercover. They have undercover agents who go in to the area, into the brothels, and they pretend to be clients. They go in and they get there and they just say, hey, we just want to talk. And they get information about who's there, how many girls are there, their ages. They find out where these young girls are are held because they keep them hidden. And then they find out how the brothels are set up, how the rooms are divided, how to get in and how to get out. They go back with all the information. Then they plan a rescue military-type operation. And then they go in. They go in with police officers. They go in with doctors. They go in with social workers. They actually go in with at least two citizens from the local church because in India, at least in Kolkata, the the witnesses of two civilians or a civilian witness uh, carries more weight in court than the witness of a, a police officer because there's so much corruption. And so the local church in that city is, is you know, anting up. I mean, they got people going in with these teams uh, uh, to rescue these girls. And it's dangerous business. I mean, these criminals uh, are serious. They took, us, um, they took us into two red light districts. Uh, one is particularly dangerous, so they, uh, they took us in by uh, this little Jeep-like vehicle and um, when we think of city streets, we think of big city, you know, but old Kolkata, you know, there's just these old beat-up buildings that were built by the British, and the, the, the streets are very, very narrow in this old section of the city. The street is not quite as wide as this whole middle section, and so getting, getting two cars or vehicles through there is not easy, and, uh, and so they wanted to bring us through, but they, and they had undercover people throughout the street to make sure we could get through, because if we couldn't, we would be in trouble. And uh, we had a second backup vehicle to e- extract us if there was a problem. And I'm not going to lie, man. It was, a little, it was a, little, I was a little nervous going in there. We're in the middle of it, and uh, we had to stop for a second. And they kept saying, if we have to stop, that's a problem. And there was this guy banging on the, on the Jeep, screaming at us. And he was mad that we were there and trying to get us through the street and through the people, this mass of people. And I found out later on it was one of the undercover agents just playing a role, trying to get us through safely. But as we went through there, it was so narrow. These girls are just lined down the street on these buildings, one after another, just waiting. And you, we were very close to them. We could just look out the window, and you know, the, their faces were just, their eyes were vacant and dark and hopeless and sad. And it was really hard to be there. It was hard to see it. We walked through another section, and um, uh, again, as we got close to some of the girls' um, it was really the, 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 just the emptiness and the hopelessness. And so what IJM does is amazing to me. And uh, they will go in and they will rescue these girls. And um, when they get them, the state 
the state puts most of them into like basically these warehouses. They don't really have anything for them. They put them in warehouses or kind of hospital-like wards with a mat or maybe a bed and some food. But that's it. That's all they do for these, these young girls. That's it. And so several years ago, um, IJM realized these, these kids, and really some of them are just kids who've been traumatized, taken from their families and put through what they've been put through. They need more than just a mat and some food. And so... Uh, in partnership with a Christian ministry called JKPS in Kolkata, um, they established what's, what's known as Mahima House, or Mahima means glory, or glory house. It's a secured aftercare facility, a rehabilitation home for these rescued underage girls. And uh, Mahima works to bring physical, emotional, social, vocational, and spiritual healing and restoration to them. And so we had a chance to go. We went from one night we were in the uh, one day we were in the red light district and seeing the darkness there and the hopelessness and the brokenness and the evil of that. And then uh, the next day we were able to go to Mahima and meet some of these girls. Mahima has twenty five beds, and we were able to visit with the girls. We were able to meet with them. We, didn't, we can't. We weren't allowed to take pictures of their faces because they're protected. Because these girls are going to uh, testify against their captors. See, IJM isn't just about rescuing the girls. It's, they're about bringing these people to justice. They've had three convictions uh, this year alone. And so um, they're, they're protected because these girls are going to testify in court against these people, and these people don't want that to happen, so they're not, they have to be protected. And, um, and it's interesting because in India it used to be that these girls, if they were going to testify against a captor or, or a madam or a pimp, they had to do it face to face. And these girl, the girls were intimidated. And so IJM worked with the authorities to change the law in India where they can now do it from behind a screen, safe, protected, and assured that nothing's going to happen to them. They're not going to be taken again. And they testify against these people and they're brought to justice. Um, and so when they get them, they bring them to Mahima House. And the difference between these girls at Mahima and the girls we saw on the street was astronomical. These girls had hope. They had um, there were a twinkle in their eyes. You know, they were laughing and they were, you know, they taught us to dance at one point. <laughs> you know, that was, didn't go particularly well with me, but um, they danced for us and they got us to dance and we were laughing together with them and at one point, um, we sat down on the floor in small groups, and I was sitting with um, maybe eight to ten of the girls. Again, these are all under 17. And um, uh, we just sat there and talked with them for a while, and uh, um, they asked us questions, and we asked questions. And at one point, one of the girls in my group says, tell, tell me, how, how did you come to know Jesus? And, uh, and so we got to talk, and it was... It was hard to leave them. I couldn't talk about it for two days. To see what these young kids had been put through. And, but then to see what Mahima was doing was huge. The hope, the joy, and the, uh, you know, the change was pretty dramatic. And so... Uh, I'm all behind what they're doing. And so, uh, you know, what does Mahima have to do with us? What does it have to do with All In? Well, uh, there are only 25 beds at Mahima House, and there are hundreds of girls. Um, and so IJM, uh, along with uh, JKPS, is trying to establish Mahima 2, a second home, uh, for another 25 beds. And they've already, 
they've already purchased a building. This is the the building, uh, and it's in it's in disrepair. We were able to go in and look around it and talk about what what would be needed because currently it needs a lot of renovation. It's pretty dirty. Um, they could only fit 10 bed, beds in it as it is, but there's room in the backyard for some expansion where they could get 25 beds. And so that's what they're hoping to do and do it uh, as soon as they can. And so we're hoping to be on the ground floor of this and to help them with the renovation, the expansion, and, and opening Mahima 2 and getting at least 25 more beds for 25 more underage girls and then help the operating expenses for three years. That's our hope. That's our goal. Uh, uh, a representative from IJM is going to be with us next Sunday, uh, Abram George. His family's originally from India. He's a great guy. I think you're really going to like him. He's going to talk a little bit more in detail what's happening and how IJM go, uh, goes about all of this. And uh, So make sure you come back next week. You're really going to like him, and it'll be helpful for you. So that's the global aspect of All In. Um, regionally, uh, as many of you know, we've been serving in the community just east of us along North Avenue for uh, about three years or so now. Three years ago, we sensed God leading us to the east, and uh, we went in to talk to some of the leaders in the community there, asking them, you know, what are the needs of the community? How might we be able to help? And um, ended up getting connected with the school district and and uh, got the opportunity to establish a student mentoring program in two of the most under-resourced schools in DuPage County, Jefferson Middle School, Schaefer Elementary School, just just a little south of North Avenue. And, uh, and it's been really good. It's been a great working relationship. We've got a lot of people involved in that mentoring program, our own people. And um, if, if you haven't noticed recently, there's been a lot of articles in the paper and in the news about poverty in the suburbs. In fact, the Daily Herald ran a series of articles on the front page a couple weeks ago uh, and how poverty is on the rise in the suburbs of Chicago. Suburban schools are populated now by more students whose families live at or below the poverty level than ever before. A study entitled Poverty Matters released just a couple of weeks ago by the Social Impact Research Center says Chicago suburbs accounted for 34% of the area's poor in 1990. Now the suburbs are home to 50% of the area's poor. In other words, in the Chicagoland area, 50% of the people who are at poverty level or below live in the city proper. The other 50% live in the suburbs. And it's, in, it's on the increase, actually. In fact, in DuPage County alone, from 2004 to 2011, the poverty rate went up 46%. Here's my Ray K summary of that. DuPage County is not what it used to be. Uh, it's changing, and it's changing rapidly. And there are a lot of people right around us in need of help. And we believe that God has positioned us as a church to make a difference and to play a role in helping them. And so what we'd like to do is we'd like to open a community center uh, to our east in the area that we've been involved with over three years along North Avenue. Uh, so far, uh, our ministry has cost us little in terms of money. Uh, we have a lot of people involved, and they're, they're giving their time. But in terms of f- funding, it's been relatively little. But what we envision will require a financial investment, facility, staffing, programming. But we envision a place where you know, under-resourced families and students and kids can come and they can, they, can, they can get English classes, ESL. They can get tutoring, career counseling, uh, free health screenings, computer training, free legal advice, uh, parenting classes, music classes, art classes, uh, this vocal classes. I mean, this, this could be a place where many of you uh, can apply your passions and your gifts and your abilities directly, hands-on involvement. It would be a really good thing. 
And, uh, you know, just so you realize, we're not, we're not interested in reinventing the wheel, but we're but also partnering with us some other organizations who, who've had success running these type of programs elsewhere. And so we're excited about the possibilities. We've, again, been in contact and dialogue with leaders uh, in the community there, and they're also excited about the potential of helping more um, uh, than we have already. One of the things that we said three years ago when we, we sensed God leading us to expand our influence to the east was we don't want to go and just put a church in the area. We want to be the church in the area. We want to love and help and serve people in Jesus' name. And at, and at some point, if God leads us to open a second campus where we have services, then we'll do it. Um, and we feel we're moving closer to where that could and should become a reality. So that's another part of All In, establishing a second church campus somewhere east of us between here and 294. And we've been talking to people in the area. We've been talking to churches in the area to find out what's going on. Uh, A lot of our guests on Sundays come from the east. Uh, Not everybody, but a a good majority of people come from the east. And so and some of our own people from the east. So we're, we're praying for God to open a door for us to establish a second campus somewhere at some point in the next two years. Uh, we're not exactly sure what that would look like in terms of methodology. We're considering the options, praying about those. But, you know, we can't always know exactly how things are going to work out, how things are going to look. God doesn't call us to know. He calls us to go. He calls us to step forward in faith, and he'll lead us. And that's been true ever since the days of Abraham. He called Abraham to go to a place he never heard before. He didn't know where it was. God said, just go. Trust me. And Abraham did. And so um, that's what we want to do. In terms of a second campus, basically, we need, we need funds and resources available ahead of time in order to move when God presents us with an opportunity. And I believe he will. If you look at this map, you know, this, this map represents potential um, uh, impact, area of impact, spiritual influence. We're currently, our little blue area there is where we are uh, around St. Charles Road here. The green area would be in and around where we want the community center. And a church campus, so a second campus could be in the green center, could be a little bit to the, to the east in the red area, but you can see how it begins to expand our spiritual uh, influence in the region. In addition, as most of you realize, Parkview has become a seven-day-a-week church ministering to people from all over the region, not just from the east, but from all over. And with more and more people coming every day and every week, uh, another part of All In has to do with a strategic, a strategic remodel of our current facility here on St. Charles Road. Uh, the building we're sitting in right now is aging. It's already seven years old. It's hard to believe, but it is. And uh, what we're finding is getting 1,500, 1,600 men, women, and children into the building and out of the building through three services is pretty challenging, if not chaotic. And... Uh, you know, I recognize, our leaders recognize that there's a lot of needs. There's a lot of things we would really like to have. But there's only so much we can actually do on this little spot of land. And so there are some things that we can address creatively. We can have, we can have weekly classes and find classroom space uh, off-site or have events off-site. We don't have to do everything here. But two of the, um, two of the biggest compl- ah, complaint sounds like a, sounds a little bit too harsh. One, two of the biggest concerns that we hear from people regarding Sunday in particular is just how challenging it is for our families to get their kids in and out of the, our children's ministry area. It's a bottleneck, and it's especially confusing for new families. And if you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. And uh, young families are, are our largest and fastest growing demographic. 
and so on top of that, uh, one of the concerns of many of our guests is the is that there's really outside of this room there's really no space for people to to come and just stand and meet and talk and connect with with others. Uh, I was talking to a, a couple who were just new to the church a few weeks ago, and they said, "You know, do you guys have any plans to do anything about the area outside the auditorium?" I said, "What, what do you mean?" I said, "Well, we've been coming for uh, a couple months, and we would really like to just meet some folks and talk, and but it's so crowded, and 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 we just we just basically run in from the parking lot through the mass of people, get to a seat." Get, go through the service, we really enjoy it, but then we just run out and get through the crowd again just to get back to our car. And, um, and so there's no connection. that goes, we just like a place to connect. And that's a problem, especially in a culture that is relationally disconnected. I mean, we're promised all the time a connection and community through technology. We can tweet each other, we can text each other, we can call each other anytime. We, can, we have Facebook, Internet, I mean, all these chat rooms, everything. It all promises connection, but it all leaves us wanting because it's, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't deliver what it promises because we need face-to-face time as human beings. We need each other. We need connection. We need flesh and blood connection. And so that makes a difference, having a place for people to just talk. And so we want to design and create an, an, a more open community space where people can come into the building, they can talk, they can connect, they can informally meet with each other. Uh, and these are just some conceptual drawings of what a space like that might look like. Uh, we also feel the need to respond to our families and to enhance our children's ministry access and the space itself. I mean, it just makes sense to locate early childhood on one floor and elementary on another. And we'd like to uh, renovate our nursery. Uh, we have church growth by procreation, apparently. A lot of babies are being born. And so we'd like to renovate the nursery. We'd right, like to create a, a designated special needs classroom, uh, a prayer and counseling room just outside these doors, remodel some of our office space. Um, and at, at some point, we'd like to develop some flexible uh, meeting venues for holiday overflow or you know, maybe some seminars or, or, or events where we could seat 300 people or uh, maybe a, a big class. And here's the thing. I realize that this is a lot. And I realize that some of these things may have to be phased in over more than just two years, depending on what happens with All In. But understand, you know, this facility, the church is not a building. The church is people. But the building matters. This facility is critical to what happens uh, at Parkview throughout the week and especially on Sunday mornings, you know, space plays an important role in, in teaching, connecting, and, and equipping our people, men, women, students, children, to, to go out and make a difference for Christ. And so that brings us to the, the local aspect of All In, which is about continuing to fund the ministries and programs that we're currently doing uh, right here, right now, from our children to our students to adult classes, recovery programs, man and ministry, our ministry to our homeless friends, to deacons fund, debt reduction, staffing, snow removal, air condition, lighting, all of that, all of our everyday operating expenses, all of those things need to continue. So essentially, All In is about everything I just mentioned locally, regionally, globally, and it is a lot. And some may say, well, why now? Well, why not now? Um, you know, we just worked through the book of Haggai in which the people of Israel in 720 B.C. knew what God wanted them to do, and they said, man, we don't think the time is right. And God said, no, the time is right. I, I'm telling you to do it. 
And we feel the same is true. We feel the time is right. This is our opportunity to make a difference. And we believe God has positioned us to do so. So the next obvious question then for us as a church is, okay, well, what's the cost? Uh, let me try to break it down for you uh, in, a, I think, a simple way. Uh, our annual operating budget, in order for anything, everything to happen, what's happening at the church right now, uh, our annual operating budget for one year is $2.2 million for one year. That's our budget. If we keep the status quo, we really don't increase or do anything different, over the next two years, the operating expenses would be 4.4. You just double it, two years, right? Some of the new ministry initiatives that we're talking about, we estimate will cost about $4.1 million over two years. So our all-in total cost over two years is $8.5 million. You see how that works? Current two-year operating expense, $4.4 million, and to accomplish these new initiatives we feel God leading us to do requires sort of an accelerated giving ahead of the curve type of thing at $4.1 million. So the total cost over two years is $8.5 million. That's a lot of money. But the thing is, you know, we, what we want to do for the kingdom is a big, hairy, audacious goal. I mean, it's a, it's a God-sized vision. It is. You know, it's interesting because I often hear people say, you know what, the church, the church needs to do more. The church needs to stand against evil and injustice and rescue the victimized and the, the trafficked, help the homeless, serve the poor, love the fatherless, connect the disconnected, mentor students, teach the truth, reach the lost for Jesus. The church needs to do this, that, and the other thing. And I, I am totally in agreement. I totally agree. But you are the church, see? Together we are the church. And God has called us in Christ to be all in to do significant things for the kingdom and to do it now. This is our chance. How are we hoping to accomplish and apply everything that we're talking about? We're hoping to do it through what's called a one-fund program. Uh, As with many churches, we have traditionally divided all of our resources uh, into various funds. we got a general operating fund, a deacon's fund, building fund, designated fund, campaign fund. Not anymore, at least not for two years. Instead, all of our financial giving will go into one ministry fund because it's all ministry. It's all ministry. It's all part of the vision. One church, one fund. Everything we do will be managed out of it for at least two years. Now, if that's confusing for you, um, I found someone who, who really gets it, understands it well, and who I think can explain it <clears throat> a little better than me. So listen carefully. The all-in campaign. What's that? Oh yeah, I remember. It's the two-year accelerated giving initiative. It's to help Parkview reach more people for Jesus. I love Jesus, and I want my friends to love Jesus. It's really special, super special. Really great. So, let me explain. All-in is something called a one fun. I bet you're wondering, what's a one fund? Instead of giving money to our general budget and then giving it to a capital campaign, it's all together. This way, it makes the whole thing much easier to manage. For the next two years, we are going to increase our generosity so more people can be impacted. We are going to step up to the plate and get 
sacrificially to the All In campaign. Treasure with me here. A two-year commitment is going to cover the normal budget, the Deacon's Fund, and the opportunity we have to go all out for our town, our neighbor, community, our world. You get the picture. Hey, Parkview. All you need to do now is ask God what he wants you to do. Make sure you pray and listen real hard. It's that simple. Way to go, Parkview. All right. Bye now. Bye. Bye. So, you know, if you have any questions, I can give you Sadie's contact information. So set it straight. So I, I appreciate her help. You know, in light of everything that I've said already, I know it's a lot, you know, the next question is really what, what do I want all of us to do? And uh, I really just want us each to go all in. Um, what does that look like? Well, I want, to, I want to try to give you an idea of that. Uh, if you're sitting on the end of your row to my left, your right, uh, underneath your seat, we have, a, we have a, a basket of brochures. If you would just grab one of the, that basket, grab a brochure and pass it down the row, to make sure everybody gets one. Um, you finding them Okay. They're on the end. Just pass them down. Make sure everyone gets, everyone gets one. This, this brochure, and now look, this is the, the, the temptation is going to want to open it and look through it. Try to put off, delay that gratification for a few minutes um, and, and just listen. I want you to understand that this brochure is simply meant to serve as sort of your all-in overview or guidebook. It's, it's meant to communicate uh, to you... Um, uh, Vision, the idea of vision, the information about vision, conceptual, conceptual drawings, information about IJM, JKPS, Mahima. There's some devotional materials. There's a place to take notes. It's really meant just to help communicate what All In looks like and what it involves. And uh, in there, you're going to also find, and you don't have to look at it now or take it out, there's a financial commitment card in that brochure that I'm encouraging you to take. And over the next few weeks, you know, use it as a prayer reminder of what God is calling us to do and as a church and pray for the community, pray for us. And, and, uh, and, and on Sunday, November 17th, I'm going to ask you to bring it back and, um, and join me in making a financial commitment to this all-in initiative. But this morning, I just want to make sure you, you realize that this is not just about money, giving money. It's, it's about being the church in our world. A world that needs help. It's about, it's about God's favor. It's about God's momentum. It's about a God-sized vision. It's about spiritual growth and discipleship. And you know whether you know it or not, whether you realize it or not, the reality is, as God's people, how we view and how we use our financial resources for the cause of Christ is a discipleship is- issue. It is. Because God calls us to be radically and sacrificially generous. Look, based on our average attendance right now, Parfus constituency is somewhere between 1,800 and 2,000 adults, people who consider this their home church. 50, uh, 55 to 60% of those, those people uh, give some way, some form on a regular basis. But that leaves a significant percentage of people who don't give at all. And I get that. I mean, I, I understand that the spiritual discipline of giving is not easy. Uh, it's not something that's developed overnight. But at some point, every believer has to take their first step on the journey toward generosity and faithful stewardship. And so we're providing a tool in the brochure, you don't have to find it now, that I think can help all of us figure out where we are on that journey. It's called the Generosity Ladder. 
And this is helpful imagery, at least for me, because spiritual discipleship is about growth. It's about progression. It's about advancement. It's about movement. And so if you think about giving in terms of steps on a ladder, uh, I want all of us to identify where we are in that ladder and then just take a simple step forward. For example, uh, some of us have never given at all to the ministry of the church, to Parkview. And if that's true, then I'm asking you to move to take one step on the ladder and be a first-time giver. Because I realize not everybody can move from the bottom to the top in one fell swoop. But just one step on the ladder, be a first-time giver if you've never given before. If you have given before, I'm asking you to move and take the next step and be an occasional giver. And for some of us, we already give every now and then, and so I'm asking you to move and become a disciplined, intentional, consistent giver. If you already give regularly and intentionally, then I'm asking you to move and take a step toward tithing. Now, for those of us who don't know what tithing is, the word tithe simply means one-tenth. It represents the biblical idea of giving to God 10% of our annual income and keeping 90% to live on and use whatever way we want. And just, just so we're clear, though, tithing was required of God's people in the Old Testament, but it is not mandated or required of the Christian church. It does, however, in my opinion, serve as a good biblical guideline uh, in identifying generosity. Because the true standard of biblical generosity rests with the idea of sacrifice. And while Jesus essentially affirmed the practice of tithing in Matthew 23, he never demanded it. In fact, his idea of generosity uh, had no limits. Case in point, the poor widow who came into the temple one day and gave uh, two small coins, all that she had, Jesus affirmed her faith and sacrificial generosity, which in her case was 100%. But all that to say is, ultimate generosity is measured not so much by the percentage, but by the pinch, by the sacrifice. And here's the deal. I would never ask you guys to do something that I, myself, am unwilling to do. For 28 years, uh, my wife and I have tithed to our churches. We've only been in three in 20. 29 years. Uh, we've only been in three. Um, when we were in seminary, uh, we were there at church for four years. We were then out of seminary as a youth pastor in, in North Jersey for, uh, for seven years, and then I've been here ever since. Uh, so when we were in, in grad school, the church we were going at, uh, going to, we've decided we're going to start to tithe and give. And in some ways, that was easy for us because we didn't really have anything. You know? So 10% of nothing is you know, not a lot. Do the math. So it was, it was, we got started. Um, but what little we had, we decided we were going we to tithe. And we've been doing it ever since. We've never looked back. I, I've, look, I've never gone hungry. You know, I've never missed a meal. Uh, and God has taken care of us all the way. But we've, we've practiced that discipline. Uh, and so for us, movement... Uh, on the generosity ladder means us taking a step to abundant giving over and above the tithe. And we're going to do that. We are going to make a sacrificial commitment to all in, just like everybody else. And so basically, I'm asking all of us who call Parfu home to do the same, to join us in taking a step forward in our generosity, whatever that means for you, whatever that means for you, to take a step to make a move. But I will say this, and you probably will never hear a senior pastor say this. But I'm weird, so here it goes. For most of us, movement is represented on this ladder. However, for a few of us, 
in terms of spiritual growth and discipleship, movement may mean that you stop giving, that you just stop. Because if you give out of this, out of this burden, burdensome religious obligation, this guilt or fear, I would rather you not give until you, until you understand the love and grace of God. I mean, I'm serious. I don't, I don't think you should give until your generosity flows out of true love and joy and freedom and gratitude for, for what God in Christ has graciously done for you. Because when you really understand it, when you really understand it, giving becomes a privilege and a joy. And there's, there's meaning behind it. And, and you can sacrifice and give with a smile on your face, which is what I think the Apostle Paul was getting at when he said, God loves a cheerful giver. My hope and prayer is that we all grasp the reality of what God has done for us and, and what he calls us to do as his people. And as a result, we will respond and we will find our place on this giving ladder and, and we will experience together 100% participation. 100% participation in this all-in effort. Because that would mean that we're all growing in personal discipleship, stewardship, and commitment to the mission of making a spiritual difference in our world. So here's what I'm inviting each of us to do. Starting today and over the next couple of weeks, uh, I'm inviting you to pray and ask God, you know, where do you fit into the vision? And ask him what it is that he wants you to do. And what have you been doing? And, and what difference does God want, want, want to make in your life? And what kind of sacrifices does he wants you to make? And then I, I just want you to listen to what God has to say and try and be sensitive to where he or where and what he leads you to do. And then, then in simple faith and obedience, just do it. Whatever that means for you, do it. Or as Sadie put it, you know, it's that easy. <laughs> you know, pray, ask, listen, and, and do. And I realize, look, I realize this is no small thing. I mean, this is no ca- call to casual commitment. It's a big deal. It is. And one of the hardest things, one of the hardest parts of being a senior pastor, I'll just tell you, is not not the busy schedule, it's not having to make difficult decisions, it's not dealing with critics. You know, the hardest part for me is knowing that God has called us to mission. He's called us to do something big in our world for his kingdom. And knowing that we have the resources to do it, we got the people, the time, the gifts, the money, we have God himself on our side. And the only thing that stands between us in accomplishing what God is leading us to do is our willingness to go all in. That's it. God's all ready to go. He's already all in. You think about it, 2,000 years ago, uh, an obscure and marginal group of men and women who were followers of Jesus took seriously the mission he gave them and very quickly became the dominant spiritual force in their local community, their region, and eventually the world. Uh, They had no political power, no army, no vast wealth. So how did they do it? They trusted God. They responded to his grace. They went fearlessly forward. They lived, they loved, they served, and they gave in such a way that the people around them in a, in a secular Greco-Roman world, the people around them were astounded. They had never seen such behavior and in turn believed the message and the truth of the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of grace. The early church was all in. The famous German poet and novelist, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, once said, treat a man as he is and he will remain as he is. Treat a man as he can be and should be and he will become as he can 
and should be. And I, I think he's right. I agree with that. And so I am treating you as men and women and students who know the love and grace of God experienced in and through Jesus as people who not only recognize what God has called us to do and who he calls us to be, but a church filled with committed Christ followers who are an unstoppable spiritual force in this world of ours. Together and with God's help, this, this is who we can be, it is who we should be, it is who we will be. And in the end, again, with the psalmist, we will sing together, the Lord, the Lord, he has done all this. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Let's pray together. Our Father, I realize that this is a lot of information uh, in a short amount of time. But ultimately it boils down to the fact that you have called your people to purpose, to mission. You've called us to make a spiritual difference in our world. This is our opportunity. This is our life. Now is the time for us. And uh, I pray that we would have the courage, that we would have the faith to, um, to follow you full bore, um, to go all in, to make a difference in the lives of people you care deeply about, who you sent Jesus to save and rescue. Men, women, students, children of our, of our local community, of our region and of our world that we would have the courage to do the things we like to talk about, reach the lost, disciple people, stand against evil and injustice, uh, serve the homeless, feed the hungry, heal the victims, uh, rescue the trafficked, all of these things. Um, I pray that you would give us the courage to go in, all in with you to make a difference. I pray you would, you would move among us as your people, the church, for the sake of the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to thank you all for joining us this morning. And, uh, you know, I hope, again, I hope you guys realize this is not about earning God's favor. It's not about doing these things because we're hoping that he's going to think better of us. God already loves us. He has proven it through Jesus. Uh, what we want to do is, is our response to God. It's, it's grace changing us from the inside out, recognizing that the world needs to know the truth, um, and the world needs hope, and the, world's need, the world needs Jesus. Our goal is to bring the news of his love and, uh, and rescue to as many people as possible. And so I hope you'll be part of it. Um, I invite you to come back next week. We have uh, uh, Abraham George from IJM Washington uh, going to be with us. I think you're really going to like him. You're going to find it fascinating what's happening, what IJM is doing. I've seen it firsthand. You're going to want to come again and, and hear more and more about it in detail. But I, think, I really think you'll find it helpful. So come back next week, and we'll talk more about the global aspect of All In, okay? In the meantime, have a great week. Let me pray for you. And now, Lord, we recognize that we are the church, the church's people. And so as we leave the building and we, we enter into our world again, a world that is broken, that has darkness and, and injustice and, and people who are hurting and in need of hope, um, may we bring this good news of your love and grace with us. May we live our lives in such a, a radical, um, loving, compassionate, helpful, generous way that it astounds the the community around us, 
and gives us the opportunity to tell them and point them to Jesus. Um, I ask these things uh, for his sake. Uh, Amen. And uh, thanks for being here. We'll see you next week.